All right. Hello, and welcome to the Bootstrap Experience Podcast, where each week Bjorn and I talk about running our Bootstrap SaaS businesses. So, what have you been up to, Bjorn? Yeah, it's been a, a hectic week. Last week was really good, and then this week has been a bit different. My wife's in hospital at the moment for a surgery, so I've sort of been, you know, spending a lot of my time in the hospital together with her, and then um, you know, otherwise picking up the kids and taking them to play dates and making dinner and making school lunches and. Just a bit more non-work related this week, but um, it's been nice. Like at the same time, when I have had time to to do some work, I've been getting into. I think I, I go to sort of programming when when I don't want to work. You know, <laughs> like sure, that's yeah. the part of work I I enjoy the most. I think so. I've been getting into doing more programming the last couple of weeks, which has been really nice. We've been working on um, the view components for basically building the Polaris. I would say sort of the React, Shopify has like the React Polaris framework, right? Mm-hmm. And we're sort of recreating that using standard Rails and then this view components sort of system where every piece of the UI is broken down into a component. And Rails has a fairly recent sort of library that came out to help out with these view components built by the team GitHub or a guy at GitHub. The plan all along has been to have these view components part of the app. But we were thinking we'd just build them out as we needed each one. And I think now that we've built a few screens, like we've got our welcome flow, we have a, like an events activity log style thing, and then we have our settings page as well. And we've built out a few of the views in the app. And we're sort of seeing that every time we add a new component or refactor a component, we have to go back and update things in all three views, right? And so the further in the project that we get, the more we'd have to go back and refactor every time that we complete these components or add more components. So we sort of stopped and, and taking the time the last couple of weeks just to refactor and, and build out the components part first instead of doing it the other way around or like as a as needed sort of basis. But yeah, that was a very long intro of, yeah. <laughs> how are you? I'm good. You know, it's just, it's funny why you're mentioning the, the view components thing. It gave me, a, I'm going to throw this out there in case anyone needs a new business idea. Well, I would love, so the Polaris components are only available natively for React. Man, I would love it if someone would build these for other stacks. Like if I could just do view components, like like VUE for view. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. I'd happily pay 300 bucks for a working, kept up to date library of Polaris components. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. React is sort of, was the new hotness and I guess it kind of still is, you know, a lot of the place, but I don't like React and I don't want to build, you know, that I think, yeah. you know, now Shopify is also big enough that I'm sure that there's a lot of us using different tech stacks that are rebuilding Polaris in different ways. Like we're doing, um, you know, in Rails and everything. And I know there's uh, a guy called Dan Gamble who's done, and I guess I mentioned this maybe last time, but uh, he's put out an open source version where he's he's showing how he's building these Polaris components. And we're doing it pretty much. I got a lot of inspiration from, from how he was doing it and, when we're refactoring, we used a lot of his stuff. But I'm sure, yeah, Vue and other server-side generated frameworks would would love to see more of these projects. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you could probably build a pretty good business just selling, because I think you could price it pretty high and uh, do well. So anyway. Yeah, I think so too. If you're building that, please send me a message. I'll buy it. <laughs> Let us know. I think, you know, I was sort of tossing up the idea whether I should open source what we were working on as well. But because it's kind of, you know, we're already developing on the application, and then we have this app kit, which is like another uh, repository that you that you code in, and then to add a third repository. So every time that you're going to be, you know, building something out, you've got to commit to three repositories. Isn't going to be a lot of fun. So we didn't want to right. split it out into a separate 
gem or engine for Rails. But that may come once once we've got the whole thing built and it's it's a lot more stable, then we might open source the components themselves. That's awesome. Because there's really we're trying to build them in a way that our application logic doesn't have to be in the components at all. So you just pass in what properties you want and you can validate what's passed into each component, making sure that it's, you know, a string or a boolean or whatever. And you can also like say this Polaris has like say left alignment, center alignment, or right alignment on a particular thing that you can pass in. And if you pass in anything else, we can sort of say, hey, that's not a allowed value sort of thing. So we're building out all these things. And then keeping our actual, how to say, view logic is in the view file itself. And then the view file calls the components, right? So so they're pretty dumb in a sense. They just pass the actual final value and don't have to do any of the actual business logic or anything like that. It's turned out pretty well. There's a lot of work in just refactoring them, but I think we're in a really good place now. And it's going to be a lot easier to sort of you know, build out the next views of the app. That's awesome. Yeah, because we've spent the time to do it now. Yeah, I've seen a few open source projects doing like some view components and things like that with Polaris. They're not ever maintained for very long, which is totally my problem. Like that's why I don't open source stuff is because I know that I will abandon it in yeah. weeks. And yeah. I feel bad like throwing it out there if I know no one's going to be taking care of it. I think that's a smart thinking, not to publish stuff that you don't <laughs> feel like maintaining as well. Yeah. <laughs> I totally agree. But I think if I was to put out the Polaris one, because at least that's a plan and, and maybe you know time will tell if that's what ends up happening, but to migrate all my apps over to using the same framework, right? So, so if I've got you know four or five apps running on this thing, then it, it's going to be quite easy to maintain because it'll be building it out and maintaining it for, for our own products, right? Whereas I think something like partner metrics where I've got that on the side, it's kind of like when I have to make changes to it to keep it up to date and keep it working and, and things like that. It's not something that's part of my day-to-day. You know, it, it's not what generates revenue. or So it's harder to sort of commit time to it. Yeah, it's always going to be last on your list. Exactly. And I think if you're going to be running a, an open source thing, it shouldn't be the last on your list. It, right. Yeah, it should be a little, little bit more. At least if you want to keep it active and, and get build a community around it, in a sense. I've actually got the whole team using uh, partner metrics now, which is pretty cool. We're loving it. Oh, nice. <laughs> ah, good. Good stuff. Yeah, is there anything you think uh, or you wish, I'm sure there's a big long list, but what would you or the team hope it could do better? The bit, You know, it's funny, it's a, it's a small thing, but the big thing that everyone said was that they would love to, so I just had to share my login with the team. Yeah. Like they yeah. would love being able to add users to accounts or having teams in there. But as far as the metrics go, like they're awesome. Yeah, I think I'm pretty happy with how they've turned out. And I remember researching a lot around it. But like you mentioned with the multiple users, that annoys me as well. Because if I get somebody on that I want to help me with something, I've got to share. Like I've got right. to make up some some silly password and then share that. Yeah, I think that makes sense because it it turned out that larger teams are using this. I thought it'd just be, you know, uh, right. people like myself. But uh, And I think I just spun it up as with whatever tools were available at the time as quickly as possible. And then... Um, yeah, I didn't really think multi-user into it, but uh, I don't think Absolutely. technically it's that hard to do. It's a matter of just creating sort of a, a company or an account model as well, and then having multiple users. I'm always surprised at the size of some of the companies operating in the Shopify space. Like we talk to stores that you know doesn't look like much, and you find out they've got a team of 30 people working full time on this and, and all that. You yeah. know, it's it's it can be crazy. Yeah, definitely. I th- I've seen it also with. Um, you know, a lot of these companies that acquire apps, I've met a lot of them through Partner Metrics, actually. But uh, 
because they often use it when they're evaluating an app if they're going to purchase it or ah, okay yeah so there you kind of want to share a login to them as well and maybe even there you want to give it different access rights than maybe you you have yourself yeah well that was um that was one thing I had looked at before when I was sharing partner metrics with an outside person. So one thing that I did myself and I would love to build in, like I was willing to share the numbers at that point, but I wasn't willing to share the customer list. So what I ended up doing was just hashing the customer information when I imported it, but it'd be awesome if there was a way to like hide that or whatever in the app. Yeah, it actually is hidden now, I think. Oh, okay. Because I, yeah, so I hashed those because it would tell you who your best customers are and stuff like that. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, on the, on the main page. And I actually did that a while back, so they're all hashed out now. Oh, that's funny. Then I had somebody asking the opposite thing like a week ago, saying, hey, I'd love to be able to see my, you know, why can't I see the My Shopify domain of these, these stores? And the, the answer was, well, because these, this app is often you know, used by other people, you don't generally want to give them your entire list of, of customers, right? Yeah, so then, then I sort of thought about, well, hey, how hard would it be then to show it? But the problem is because I don't have multiple users, all users have the same access rights, right? So you can't tell. Yeah. And because you're sharing a login, you can't go to like a settings page and say, well, only show hashed store names or whatever. Because the person logging in could just go there and turn it off, right? <laughs> because it's yeah, the same sure. login. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd need separate logins for that to be useful. But I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, good point. It's funny because it's it's basically the same request, but the opposite that I've had. So it's it's the same same point really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess you can't make everyone happy. No, no, no. <laughs> but uh, that's all right. Yeah. So, what else have you been working on then? I've been doing some dev this week too, actually, which is good because nice. I haven't been able to do that the last couple of months, like very much. So I've been working on activity based emails. Sort of the goal right now is just to reduce churn, and part of the way. They've sort of arrived at doing that is sending automated emails like once a week to give you test updates, you know, maybe some information like, uh, you know, your test has been running for a couple of weeks and it looks like you probably have enough data to make a decision, stuff like that. All right, nice. Yeah, that's been good. We sort of have all this data that like we don't make use of. Well, I should say like we collect like the absolute minimum amount of data, but things like test metrics and things like that, we do have a lot of yeah. insight into. So, um, I think it makes sense. I think we're going to launch that this week and uh, oh, wow. first email to go out Monday. So we'll see. Ah, uh, nice. Yeah, because what I noticed, like, I've really been diving into like the metrics, and it seems like there's a super clear indicator. Basically, people forget to log in to the app for a while, and even if they have tests running and they churn, yeah, the goal is to just remind them to check their test results, and hopefully that will go ways to uh, keeping them active. Yeah. I think it's a brilliant idea. Like, I think your app also leans, like, has a perfect use case for those emails actually being useful. Um, I see some apps sort of sending activity-based stuff, like Mailchimp does it. Hey, here's your you know email list. Um, you know how much has it grown in the last week? They send you a weekly email showing you know if your list has grown or or whatever. Right, and that's kind of like yeah. I think that's more of a we just wanted to send you an email to remind you that we exist or come and log in. Whereas I think yours, it has the potential to sort of really deliver value in a sense like, hey, you, yeah, like you're saying, there's enough information now to make a decision. And that's the perfect perfect thing that you want, right? And if you can trust the system to let you know when there's something that you can have a look at, you, you'll you enjoy it even more and you will use it more. Yeah, that's a little bit of um, like, I never really sent emails before. And I guess my thinking was like, I just don't want to annoy people. But it's like what I've realized 
or what was pointed out to me is that if you don't remember to log into the app, it's like totally silent. Like you'll never hear anything, you'll never get any indication that you should be doing something. And I guess yeah. I can see that's that's not the greatest. No, no. Have you had any kind of drip campaign set up, like a, a welcome flow or anything like that, or is it just been yeah, that? yeah? So there's an onboarding that basically gives them tips on how to set up their first test, how to interpret the test results, like and it goes out over basically the period of their free two week trial. It's got like some videos and stuff like that. And what's kind of cool, I figured out how to do a Mailchimp is uh, it branches if they actually create that first test or not. Right. Yeah. So if they do create the test, it kind of goes more into the details. And if they don't create a test, it's sort of like more, how can I help? Here's my calendar link, that kind of yeah. thing. But it's only yeah. it's only about four or five emails max over like two weeks. Yeah. I think that's fine. I think that's good. Would you say that they're more than educational, not so product specific, but more like the domain of A B testing? So like teaching them, hey, this is like you're saying, this is how you should interpret the results or Yeah, it's definitely like within the context of the tool, but it tries to give like a crash course in A B testing. Yeah. And that's that's sort of the other thing I'm starting to put effort into is just more educational material around A B testing, the good types of tests to run, thing like sort of generalized stuff like that, I think would be helpful. Yeah. Cause that's like the number one. I was actually surprised like when we started talking to customers, because I don't do that, but now that we have a team, we talk more. Yeah. It's like <laughs> we talked to some churned users and they're like, oh, the app was great. We just ran, we finished our tests, you know? Yeah. So like the the key thing we realized is like we need to show them. There's so many good tests out there. You can run that'll increase your revenue and just keep getting ideas because they're kind of like we just ran out of ideas. Yeah, you could even, and maybe I, I don't know anything about A/B testing really, but you know, can you have some type of template style? You know, like, hey, here's five ideas. Click here, and we'll we'll set up like, or at least just name the campaign what you what it should be, and you know, can you sort of help guide them on the way to the different types of tests that they can do? That's so funny. Like I had never that had never occurred to me, and they've been the new team has been pushing for like those templates hard. Yeah. So I think in the next couple of months, yeah, we'll probably have something like that. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah. You see more and more tools doing it, and I think it's a really good way to both teach and to to ensure that they get the most out of the product. And I think you know when you're saying that your your email or your drip campaign is is less sort of tool based and more you know teaching them a crash course, I think that's probably what I don't do very well in, in the emails that we send. We send out like drip emails, but they're very much like, hey, this is how you choose a design. And they're very much like, hey, click this button to get to move to the next step or this is the action you need to take. And it's I guess it's more trying to walk them through the funnel in a sense mm-hmm. without maybe teaching them what would be good to know. But then, you know, invoicing and stuff, what do you need to know? But I, I guess there's mm-hmm. like a country-specific variations of, of what a particular person in Germany should do to set up the app for because we've had so many German customers and we've sort of set up their emails in a specific way to, to meet the German requirements and so forth. Oh, interesting. It would make sense maybe to to go a bit wilder on on our flows to teach more of these things as well. But it just, yeah, it just popped up an idea. It's something that I'm not doing well enough in the sense that, yeah, we're very transactional, like funnel-based instead of uh, mm-hmm. learning. But then again, I just don't feel like I'm an expert on invoices. You know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, we'll see. Well, it's tough. Like I kind of learned early on with need A/B testing. Like people know they should A/B test, and they see blog posts from Shopify and things like that. But like they don't really know what that entails. A lot of times when they install the app, so like it's kind of tough because you have to teach them not just to use the tool, but also like here's how A/B testing works. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's always 
like a tougher market to to build or you're almost building the market as well as obviously people know that optimizing their website is a good thing right but then you need to teach them about this particular way of optimizing and i think that's always harder than people already knowing what they need in a sense for sure, yeah, and I think I, I'm I'm guessing here, but I think that's probably going to be like the marketing team's big focus for the year is like putting out that kind of educational stuff. Are you going to be doing uh, like the screen recordings and things and putting those into the emails as well? Then do you think? Or yeah, well, so I did that on the onboarding sequence. I imagine we'll do more of that. I got to update those; they're so bad. Like those, my first <laughs> attempt at doing screencasts, and uh, oh man, I'm so awkward. And <laughs> it's yeah. just, I'm using an old version of the app too that I haven't like updated those screencasts. I think if you do like a full redesign, it it's almost. Like detrimental to show old screenshots and things like yeah, people go oh yeah, this is this doesn't match reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thankfully it wasn't a full redesign. Like it's pretty close, but there's definitely some spots where I click a button and it's in a new place now or something. Yeah, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then especially if they're trying to teach the tool. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. We're also looking at, at doing all the email flows, and I mentioned that before. But uh, now we've got the design of the email put together, and my my wife designed the email and how the the elements should be laid out, and and your cross sell is a big thing for for my apps. You're getting people from one app to the next, and we have the flows where if we take the email app where you can purchase a, a template, right? It's a one time mm-hmm. payment. Then we have sort of a, a few different flows where you go from you've installed the app, and then the next step, what we want you to do is is to pick a template, and then if you don't haven't picked a template, then we send another email, sort of you know trying to trying to get them to decide on a particular design. And then if they take that step, then the next sort of thing that we're trying to get them into is the to purchase or like to finish the design and purchase the template. And then once they've done that, then then we can go into more like cross-selling and triggering like a, a review, asking for a review and these types of flows. But there've never been like a lot of visual elements in the emails and they've always been kind of boring. So now we're trying to do a bit more with, or put a bit more personality into them. And I'm pretty excited about the designs that that we're sort of doing. It's nothing radical, or, but they're just more, more friendly and have a bit more color in them and, and should hopefully sort of catch a bit more attention. Yeah, it's something I'm actually looking forward to, to doing more of or like to getting migrated. Also because Intercom came out with some new um, tool where they want you to migrate from the old campaign system to a new sort of series uh, system, um, which actually makes it a lot easier to build this branching logic and keeping everything in one place and putting timers on things and so it's actually be yeah I'm I'm looking forward to to getting that in. So I just need to build the the template itself. I'd need like one for the overall company template for Forsberg plus two. Hmm. And then a variation of that for each of the apps. So it's like the order printer pro template would look slightly different to the orderly print template, for example. But they'll still you'd still be able to tell that they're from the same company. And that's kind of the the idea between it. But yeah, it's a, a lot of work. You know, it's not just building one template, it's, it's building like five. And then you might have variations, some that have like cross cells in the bottom and others that don't. It, it quickly <laughs> becomes a lot of work. And then you need to actually build the emails after that. So that's just the templates themselves, like the, the base. And then you can put content into the actual sort of body of the email. But yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. That's cool. Yeah, I always just use like Laravel has like a very basic, almost plain text email. And I just use that for everything. But I know at some point we're going to have to grade those. Yeah. It's funny, that's, that's kind of one thing I've been struggling with a little bit, bringing a team on. Like I'm realizing that there's all these decisions I made in the past with the mindset of no one will ever work on this but me. So 
do what's easiest for me. And now it's like blowing up my face. <laughs> yeah. What kind of things have you found there? Yeah, just just as an example, like the um the homepage for NeedAB, like the domain homepage. I just built a little static HTML file and threw it up there. And now the marketing guy wants control over that, but he doesn't know how to do that. He's using like a WYSIWYG unbounce thing. And yeah. I didn't put the app on a subdomain. So it's like this whole thing now where I'm trying to get him to a point where he can have like a page he can update as he sees fit is a nightmare. And there's tons of things like that. All these little decisions I made going like, well, I'm a developer. No one will ever work on this but me or maybe <laughs> another developer. So let's just do the developer centric solution. And sure. But I think that's fair. Like, I think that's just part of becoming more mature. You know, like, I'm not sure how you felt, but. When I started out building these apps, I didn't think that they'd become what they have now. Right. Or that it would, you know, like it was a side project. Uh, I'm super happy where it's ended up, but I think you almost have to end up with a bit of technical day <laughs> or like, because you are just scrappy and doing things to see if you've actually got a business to begin with, right? If we all took the time to build out like a full fledged marketing website before we have any revenue, before we launch the app, you know what I mean? Like it's just another yeah. thing on the list. And sometimes, or a lot of the time, done is better than perfect. Yeah. And I don't know, like, I guess I don't know if I would do it differently now if I was starting again. Probably not, I guess. I mean, especially in the beginning, like, I didn't want to have overhead by paying for 20 different other SASs to run mine and learning all a bunch of different, like, it was so much easier for me to write HTML and CSS than to learn some new tool. Like a SaaS tool. Exactly. That's that's kind of you know the the point is to to get to where you can start generating income from this project, right? Yeah. And the more tools you have to pay for and everything else, the further out that goal gets. I think. Yeah, I wouldn't beat myself up too much about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's definitely been. Uh, I'm like a full on bottleneck at this point because everyone needs to go through me for everything because it's all in the code somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Sure. But I mean, there's nothing. You know, if it is a static website, it shouldn't be super hard to recreate it, right? No, no, not too much. But I guess, like you say, with the domain is probably the hardest part. Oh, yeah, I'm not even looking at that right now. I don't know how I'm going to move to a subdomain for the app. Like, well, I'll do it at some point, but yeah, it's not going to be fun. Yeah, because do you have like front-end code calling back to you as well? I do, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's where I start thinking about is like... um yeah, like the script tags and webhooks and things like that. Where are all those pointing? I don't yeah. look into that and probably, but I, my guess is I'll probably have to run some sort of update on every store that has the app installed. Yeah. Things like that scare me. And I, I'm kind of, <laughs> I have this uh, tracking service on, on all the emails, right? Which caused all this headache at the beginning of the year for me, which it wasn't actually a headache at all. It wasn't even my app. But, and the problem with the, the emails, right? The email templates is that you export them and then put them into your Shopify admin. And so those all point to this tracking service. And I want to deprecate that tracking service now, both for performance, but also security in a sense, because you can redirect uh, using that service. And so I want to deprecate it now, but it means to do that, I have to email basically anyone that's purchased the app prior to making that a, back in January, basically change the email code. So it just, it adds the UTM parameters directly in the email code and then links directly to their Shopify website instead of going through this uh, redirect service first to add the UTM and then and then go to the final URL. Yeah, but it, it means I need to to basically email all the people that have purchased a template before like January 2020 or whatever and have them manually copy paste over the new code into Shopify. Oh man. Yeah, and I don't want to guess how many it is, but it's like tens of thousands of people 
<laughs> there's maybe like 20,000 stores I'd have to send that email to and say, hey, we're deprecating this and you have until X date to, right. to, to update. Otherwise, the links in your emails will stop working. It's so hard to get people to make code updates like that too. Yeah, that's what I mean. And luckily, it's just a matter of like copy-pasting for them. They don't have to manually do any changes and stuff. But you know, some stores may have also customized the email code after they've exported it from the app. I can't right. stop that, right? I just wish there was an API to the email notification system in Shopify so you could just run this on all the ones. Because like, I could check what Shopify have in their system and what the current design is that they have in ours. And if they match, I know that they haven't modified it, right? Mm. And then I could just override it with an unmodified latest version. Oh, that would be nice. Uh, oh, sorry, the modified, like same, exact, everything else is the same. The only difference is the way the links are included in the emails. And I could just override all those. But I can't. There's no API. <laughs> yeah, the, the joy of, of putting links out there to, to services yeah. that you run. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, thankfully, luckily, I'm pretty sure I'll be able to just run an automated thing to update anything I need to update. But still, that's always like a scary thing to do anyway. Yeah, exactly. But how do you, like, do you use script tags or how do you? Yeah, so it uses a script tag to do some on-page tracking for test performance. Mm-hmm. And then we make pretty heavy use of webhooks, yeah. Which the webhooks thing—that's that's something I've been dealing with this morning. Actually, it's been kind of weird. Is that I've noticed for the last like week or so, about ten percent of Shopify's webhooks have been firing three times in a row. Oh wow! Every time they fire, just a little strange. Just trying to figure out what's up with that, and I guess build in a little more safety into the app to right handle that better. Yeah, you've gone all full AWS and Lambda and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm, yeah, um, yeah. Why? Why are they? Is that because they're getting a fail notice from your side, or just because they're replaying something? I don't think so. I think they're just replaying it because it, it, they're all going into the database correctly. So I, I don't think they're getting any kind of fail. And they're always. No. I notice it's weird. It's always exactly three seconds apart too. So it'll just be boom, boom, boom every three seconds ah. uh, when it happens. Okay. And it's only like ten percent of the time. Super, super strange. And there's no. Yeah. Who Who knows? Maybe <laughs> uh, you know one of Shopify's clusters or something is going crazy. Yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, I mean, it made me realize that I'd need to build in a little more safety for that because there's a few like duplicated events in the database now. Yeah, how do you dupe webhooks? That's been something because we're going to be using webhooks more in, in uh, our new app. And I've really, I played around with like auto webhooks years and years ago, mm. but I haven't run a lot since. So do you have any sort of golden tips for me that I should keep in mind? Yeah. So what I think I'm, well, there's like two things I can do. One is sort of, this is the stopgap where I just inspect and make sure that there's not already a similar enough row added to the database and just don't insert the new one if so. But all webhooks have a signature, which is a hash of their content. So I think if I just Mm. store that for, you know, four hours or 24 hours or something like that and just you know, cache it and and check it real quick to make sure I have not processed this webhook. Then it's good. Okay. What did you call that one? The the content hash or just a webhook hash? Yeah, it's a, a sign- signature. Signature. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a a good point because a duplication from webhooks is like the biggest one. Yeah. Say Shopify. One thing I've always wondered about is like if somebody updates the same record in Shopify multiple times in pretty quick succession, how do you know which one came first? So say they, you have a product, you publish it, it was in draft, you publish it, and then you mark it back as a draft. How do you know which one wins, right? Is, is it looking at the, the really long timestamp or is there just 
there is a timestamp of like updated time on there. And so I do a lot with cart webhooks, like cart creation, cart updates and things like that. Yeah. And the way I kind of do, I don't look at the timestamps there. I just sort of apply them as they come in, knowing that it'll eventually be right because a cart session is not going to be more than like, you know, an hour or two. Right. And it gets okay. rolled up every couple of hours. So I feel like it's, as long as I'm sort of reconstructing the final result, it's all good. Okay. Yeah. I guess do webhooks have an ID? Just a signature, I think. Yeah. Cause it would have been cool if you could just check the, the order of the webhook creation. But I guess then is it the webhook being, <laughs> is it a webhook that was created earlier that's being retried? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. That's a good question. So they have, um, they have a newer thing called Amazon Event Bridge, which I know I will update to at some point, but that is okay. supposed to alleviate a lot of these issues. And, Bonus, if you're on AWS, it should reduce your hosting costs because they actually end up paying for... The, my understanding, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think they end up paying mm-hmm. to send the webhook rather than you paying to receive it. Ah, right. Okay. I'm paying a good bit of money to handle those webhooks that should uh, actually save me a bunch of money to move to that system. Okay. Do you understand how... Like, I've had a quick... How to say, clicking on a link, seeing the site and going, hmm, I don't understand this. <laughs> <laughs> That's about as much as I know. Do you like know any more about it than my very basic understanding? And I could be totally wrong here, so everyone can yeah, laugh sure. at me. But I think essentially it gets added to almost a queue in Amazon that you can then read from at your ah. at your whatever pace or, or schedule. Um so it's just sort of held there and you read from it. Right. Okay. So it's almost like a yeah, just like a normal queuing system yeah. where instead of us having to receive the webhook and put it into our queue, it's it's already in a queue when we yeah, when it's when it's created. Yeah, and then so the nice thing is like if my servers just totally went down, if it was just, you know, huge crash or whatever, those webhooks would just pile up and then once I'm back up and running, I can process them all again. Where right now, if everything went down, I would miss those webhooks and they may or may not get retried depending on how long it takes to come back up. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I can see how that would be. Huh. I'll have to investigate that more before I get too deep on uh, on webhooks then, because uh, that's kind of one of the uh, next things that we're going to be... We've just done like a cancel button on the settings page, uh, cancel account, and that obviously kills the subscription. But then we're part of the you know teardown is also listening for the uninstalled webhooks. Right which will then go into the same process. And that's actually the, one of the next stories that we're going to be working on for AppKit. So I think reading up on Amazon EventBridge may be the right thing to do. For sure. Yeah, I think it's definitely an upgrade. Because like, I process, I think, about 60 million webhooks a month. And Whoa. anything to make that easier. Yeah, it's like uh, when something goes wrong, it's it's bad. Yeah. And actually, with the uninstalled webhooks are weird. Like I've been dealing with that a little bit too, because Shopify doesn't always... Maybe they always send it, but there's some events that are equivalent to an uninstall that they don't send it for, like a closed yeah. store. I don't think they send it for. So what I've yeah. had to start doing is I just run a daily job that actually checks the charges, make sure I can contact the store, and if not, then I soft delete them in case they come back. But and also they freeze stores as well yeah. uh, for non-payment, and there we won't know about it either. And that's one of the reasons that doing the churn calculations at partner metrics is tough because of the freezing and unfreezing of uh, of charges because it changes the billing cycle. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of had to deal with that more with those um 
those weekly emails and stuff because I didn't want to send emails to someone that had closed their store a year ago but was still marked active in our system. And that's actually a good point. If I'm going to be doing this this email to deprecate the redirection service on Audley Emails app to loop through all the stores and just check which ones are actually still active in sure, Shopify because yeah. you know there's nothing worse than getting you know say you had a business and uh, even if you just moved off Shopify, but maybe the business didn't do well. You don't want to hear like uh, two years after you bought one thing there, like, hey, you need to go in and update this if you For don't sure. have the store anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. I do something similar, but just looking to see if I have like an active token and not so much the subscription, but just checking. And if I have background jobs that do different things, and if they keep running into like a um, you know forbidden or a unauthorized, you no longer installed them, we sort of start the uninstall process in the same way as if yeah. we had received a webhook or whatever. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely should have been doing that before now, but now I am. So I think that's, yeah. uh, that's a good <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's cool. I think I'm pretty excited about that whole event bridge thing. And thanks for reminding me because I think that's now that I actually understand and let's see, you know, like <laughs> we, we've both put disclaimers on our knowledge. Right. <laughs> of, <laughs> but yeah, I think that it's worth exploring at least to see if it, it makes a sense as an alternative to to webhooks. Yeah, it seems it seems nice to me. Like just because I deal with so many, you know, sixty million a month or whatever, it's like it's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but also just the the amount of resources spent receiving those and putting them into your queue, right? Which is what you're removing mm-hmm. uh, perhaps with this system. And I think that's probably the most complicated part, at least for me, where I'd been looking at like Lambda, and then you, to get that working, you need to have one of these gateways, right? Yeah. And then you need to get that hooked up to yeah the Lambda, and then you have to have the SQS, the simple queuing service, to put it into a queue. And then my app needs to read from that queue, right? Is how I've understood. Um, I would yeah. at least. And that's like a lot of stuff that I don't, you know, I don't feel comfortable putting things out there because I know relatively nothing about Amazon, right, and their infrastructure and everything else. I was I was in that same position, and I'm on Lambda and everything else with AWS now, and that's because I don't know if there's an equivalent for Rails, but Laravel came out with this thing called Laravel Vapor, which just automates everything for you. Okay, it sort of takes like what would probably take me months to learn to stand up something functional there, down to like I completed a migration to there in about two weeks, and the majority of that was just figuring out how I was going to get the database over to the new system. But like, oh wow, it was okay. it was. Huge for just um, automating all the stuff that I didn't need to know about. Like you know, I, I know I use SQS. Yeah, that's about the extent of it. This thing just takes care of it for me. It lets me know if there's any issues, and it's pretty good at sort of fixing them. Okay. If there is, yeah. all right. Is that a hosted service then, or is that something like a, a tool that you you can sort of stand up yourself? Yeah, so it's um, they have like a, a web interface to manage some stuff, but basically it's a package you install into your project that manages like the deployments and the setups and everything. Right. Okay. And then it's kind of cool because as I've learned more, like I've been on that for a little over a year now, I can go into the Amazon Management Console and do some stuff directly if I need to. But like while I was learning, like just being able to use their web interface was awesome. It really like hides a lot of the complexity. Yeah, there's something similar. And I believe it's it, it's like Heroku alternative for for Rails apps called Hatchbox, which takes care of like uh, provisioning servers. And so you you run this Hatchbox, and then you connect that to to whatever. If you're using AWS, or you could be using DigitalOcean or some other hosting provider, and then they make sure of the you know running patches and and all that type of stuff. So it's like oh, nice. yeah, it's like a little Heroku in a box, I guess. And I think that that sounds similar, but maybe not for the more non-vanilla 
AWS stuff. Yeah. So it's really just the the basics. It was it was crazy. Like when I first moved over there too, like I didn't um I didn't under, I guess I didn't quite understand all the settings and things like that, specifically around like the API gateway. And yeah. my hosting bill for the first day I moved over there was like a thousand dollars. And I was panicking. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. I since have got it sorted out, but uh like definitely, if you're if you're running something high traffic, like uh, be smarter yeah. than I was when you when you switch over. Make sure your caching's <laughs> on point. Make sure you're using the right API gateway. All that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It can get expensive pretty quick. Yeah, you know, mine's grown over time, but I think my hosting bill is still like overall, it's about two and a half thousand dollars a month. I think now for yeah, all nice. four apps plus my little side projects and everything else. And I think that's pretty pretty reasonable. But that's like servers and databases and stuff. Right. Uh, Redis and I don't know, but the problem with with Heroku where I have all my stuff now is is the fact that it feels like and I saw a little Twitter that I read on this the other day, but like they haven't updated what you get for the money, like the amount of RAM, the CPU share and everything else for like five years, I think. Basically same same price for the exact same thing. And you know, Moore's law has sort of doesn't apply at Heroku, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> which is a shame because I love Heroku. It just doesn't feel like value for money uh, anymore. That's too bad. Yeah, I was yeah. on um, DigitalOcean before AWS, which I love them. And they they do yeah. update that constantly, which is nice. Yeah, I think you know, I think that's like one step how to say closer to the the middle. I think so. Yeah. Heroku, right? Yeah, Heroku does a little bit more management for you, but definitely there's more and more of these services coming out now. That was actually is uh, that that was the key for me um, getting my hosting costs down was uh, on Amazon was because um, I think I only pay about a thousand dollars a month now and yeah uh, which is pretty crazy given the amount of requests I handle but um, the trick was they bill you in hundred millisecond increments so I basically worked really hard to get the webhook handling down to like ninety eight milliseconds <laughs> on average <Yeah. laughs> that makes sense that's yeah. smart. Yeah, because then you stay under your first. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. You only get billed for that first one. Because it's like at 101, you still get billed for 200. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a bummer. It's like uh, getting an electrician out or something, you know, right. per, per, per started hour. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Ha, huh, nice. I was just looking um, to see if there's uh, anything for uh, AWS Event Bridge for like Rails and Ruby and stuff. And it seems like, yeah, there's, there's plenty of like articles yeah, and medium things. And so, it was kind of cool. I have to have a look uh, to see how how hard it is to set up. Yeah, I, uh, so one of, one of these days I'm definitely going to switch to it. Probably probably sooner than later. Yeah, I think now I'm like this whole green field, right? And it's like it's now time to explore. And I think that's why we've also sort of used the last two weeks to refactor a lot now because we do have the green field and we can sort of you know the decisions we make now we're going to have to live with for a, lot, a while, right? Or at least we should put enough time into to all the decisions that we are making now because we'll have to live with them for, for a long time. Yeah, uh, I've definitely found myself doing that with the new projects. It's just like the first time I was so just fast, get it out, get it done. Like now I am taking a little more time just to like the things that were really painful, you know, six months in and things like that. I'm trying to resolve from the beginning now. Yeah, definitely. Same. It's funny how you learn over time. <laughs> yeah. Hindsight. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I guess now we're sweating all the stuff that, like we talked about earlier, was you know we shouldn't have been stressing at the start. So we're just in a different part of our business now and yeah. maturity. I think that it makes sense to start stressing these details because we are thankfully in a, you know a good situation to be in. So that now we 
we can actually take the time. Yeah, it is strange. I mean, that's that's the cool thing about doing a side project. I mean, it's it's wild to think it's a full time thing now. Yeah, still kind of blows my mind. Have you been seeing like without giving away? you know, numbers and things, but have you been seeing growth the last sort of month's time or? The last month has been slow, actually. And I don't know. I mean, I got to like run some reports. I'll probably do that after, you know, we record this, but like, I think it might have to do with, I think that the uh, conversion from trial to paid has dropped a bit since we upped the prices for those top two tiers. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So yeah. And it's been about four weeks now, so it's probably time to take a look at that and evaluate. But yeah, I mean, it's been pretty static the last month. Yeah. I think it might have to do with that. Just we're not adding as much revenue. Yeah. Yeah. But I just feel the same like across the board for my apps. And I know I complained about it uh, <laughs> in March that I was, I was having a tough time growing in March. And the trend sort of, it's not that we've you know, gone flat. It's just the, the upward trajectory has got a bit of a, a kink, like a slower slope now than it did a couple months back, just even in January and February, right? And I can't really see, you know, we haven't done any drastic changes competition's been pretty much what it has been. This came, like the the change didn't happen when they started doing these new ad stuff, like the ad attribution, so people could maybe put more budget towards ads. I don't feel like the ads have played a big part in that. I don't know. Maybe it's just uh, less traffic overall. Or, But yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to hear from, from listeners at least as well. Have they seen any difference in the last couple of months? Um, yeah, for sure. It's a, I'm trying to work out if it's a general change or if there is something... I'm doing wrong or not doing aggressively enough or something, right? Well, yeah, it was weird because, yeah, we like um, from like October to, you know, end of February, probably it was just like a huge increase actually. And then it just really flattened out the last like six, eight weeks. Yeah, that's my feeling as well. Seeing pretty much exactly the same thing. Mm, Interesting. Well, it's good to know someone else. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And the funny thing is like, I guess I'm seeing less... One of the things I can see quite clearly is if I'm getting a lot of installs and a lot of new paying users on Order Printer Pro, like so that that app has like one tier where if you generate more than 50 orders a month, then you pay for the app. And if you don't, it's free. And then the overall install rate has taken a little kink, but I'd say it's tougher to get the the paid one is growing much slower than that. So it's sort of oscillating. It's going up, you know, still, but it's going up a lot, a lot slower than, than it was before. I'm just wondering if that's because there's a lot of newer stores coming in and they're not like the more mature style store that maybe we're seeing last year where obviously COVID hit and a lot of mature stores that were doing brick and mortar or just maybe weren't online a lot. But yeah, so I'm just wondering if it's like less mature stores coming in at this time of year, whereas last year was a lot of actual stores coming online, right? So they already had business running. I'm just wondering if that's the difference. That could be. Uh, I was wondering if maybe we're seeing sort of the opposite of that COVID bump we had last year where now people are getting vaccinated and going outside and shopping online a little less. I don't know. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it could very well be, right? A large percentage of, of our users are based in the US or North America. I guess Canada, don't bring up COVID. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, the US has done like a, a really good job of getting vaccines into people, right? Whereas Europe, Canada, and Australia and so forth, we haven't been. Um, we haven't had as many (laughs) vaccinations, I think. So maybe, yeah, that's what I'm seeing is is the American market, like moving a bit away from just being at home, bored all the time and buying things online. 
Yeah, it could be. I know, like personally, like I got my second vaccine last week and uh, already planning trips and, you know, trying to get out of the house more and stuff. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Let's see what, uh, hopefully some people tweet us. We're generally on Twitter most of the time. So let's hope uh, somebody else comes with some some good ideas. As yeah, to please why do. This <laughs> yeah, nice. Let's um let's leave it there. Cool. Yeah, it's been uh, been fun chatting as always. And uh, we've decided to do this every second week. Every week was us trying to find things to talk about. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think that'd be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, every two weeks, I think it, it makes sense. <laughs> All right, yeah. see you then. All right. All right, cheers.